Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On DAB, digital radio, online and on 1089 and 1053 AM, this is Motty Meats. The canny king of charismatic football commentary is joined by a football legend from the good old days. Motty Meats on Talk Sport. I'm John Motson and on this edition of Motty Meats... I'm in conversation with the former Tottenham, Watford, Real Mallorca and Northern Ireland striker, Jerry Armstrong. Jerry Armstrong, what a worker he is. Striding away there with Hamilton to his right, Norman Whiteside up on the far side of the area. Still Billy Hamilton, he's got past Tendilio. And after Armstrong! Northern Ireland has scored through Jerry Armstrong! One of the greatest moments in Irish football history and one of the most memorable moments for me commentating at a World Cup. Jerry Armstrong scoring the only goal of the game for Northern Ireland against Spain in Valencia at the 1982 World Cup. We'll get on to that later, but welcome Jerry. Let's begin with your early life because born in Belfast, growing up as a Leeds United fan, Sporting heroes George Best and Muhammad Ali, and playing Gaelic football. Gaelic football and hurling, John. That's about, that was my two sports until I was around sixteen, seventeen, and uh, I used to play a little bit of soccer in the street, but nothing more than that. And uh, then I ventured into playing soccer for the school, and I played centre half. Then I was a centre half. I didn't even play centre forward. I was a centre half, but um, I loved to play in the street and score goals. And um, then I got a suspension when I was playing Gaelic football. And um, I couldn't play Gaelic football. I was suspended for over a month. And uh, I went to play soccer with a friend one day and ended up going down to Cromick Albion, was the, the amateur league club at the time I went down to. But my stay with Cromick Albion, I don't think I played more than three or four games for them before Bangor Football Club came in. And uh, the manager there was called Bertie Neal. And he had an assistant called Billy Neal. And they signed me up. And that was my start of Irish League football. Now, what was it like in Northern Ireland? This is 1969. Um, the troubles, the outbreak of civil s- strife. Did this have any effect while you were playing Irish League football at that period? Well, I only started playing Irish League football in 1971-72, you know. Um, but, yeah, 69 was when the trouble started. And it escalated. It was like living in a war zone at times, John, you know. And, um, you know, burning buses on the roads. It was... It wasn't the norm. It was certainly not the norm. And um, you, you, you would waken up every morning and wonder what was going to greet you outside the window, you know. But um, I went to play for Bangor, but I didn't really know too much about soccer. But you did go on and have three and a half good years playing for Bangor, by the way. Before uh, a turning point in your life, Jerry, really, joining Spurs in November 1975... Yeah, I'd come, I'd come over on trial and with a young lad, Johnny Jamison, and I come over on trial for four or five days at Tottenham. And we thought it went pretty well, but I never heard anything for five or six weeks. And Arsenal were showing an awful lot of interest in me and I thought I was about to sign for Arsenal. I got a phone call from the vice chairman of Bangor Football Club, Jimmy Apperson, and he asked me uh, to meet him at the back of the uh, Albert Clock in Belfast at 12 o'clock. And we travelled up to the Donaudry Inn uh, outside of Belfast near the airport and uh, I thought I was going to be signing for Arsenal but when I went in Terry Neal was waiting to meet me and they had done a deal with Spurs had done a deal with Bangor and I signed for Tottenham Hotspur 
So you did. Now, what was the club like at White Hart Lane when you joined? Some famous names, weren't there? I just got blown away, John. You know, you're going over. You know, I think I'd only been on the plane twice before in my life. You know, and you travel over to London and um, you meet all the players. Pat Jennings, obviously, he was an All Ireland legend at the time, and um, you know the history of Tottenham Hotspur and, and Northern Ireland with Danny Blanchflower and, and so on. Chris McGrath was a current international as well there. You know, so there was lots of big names. Steve Perryman was the captain. But there were some fantastic players, really top-class players. Martin Chivers was still there, and um, he was just coming towards the end of his career. But uh, it was just full of stars. Alfie Kahn, you know, John Duncan. There was, it's just an array of talent that you, you, couldn't, you couldn't imagine. So I was just glad to go in and, uh, and join in. And I, I was still learning the game. I was learning the rules. And uh, I knew um, full-time training was going to make me fitter, but I also had to learn about the offside and how to play the offside trap. You <laughs> yeah. know, loads of stuff like that, but it was fun. I was enjoying it. Now, 1976, a year after you joined, Keith Birkinshaw took over from Terry Neal. He did, and Keith was a fantastic coach. You know, he was a coach under Terry Neal, and he was a brilliant, brilliant coach, but he became manager. Dar Yorkshire man, but he, he liked me, but he also liked me playing centre-half, and I played. I had to fill in a couple of times in an emergency and he liked me playing centre half so he had in his head that you know I could play centre half and I played right back and I played you know a lot of different positions so I was more of a utility player but I always wanted to play as a centre forward. Well at the end of that 76-77 season Tottenham were relegated they came back of course a year later we'll come back to that but it was a busy year for you because April the 17th 1977 your northern ireland debut against west germany in cologne in a friendly manager danny blanchflower oh i love danny he was just such a brilliant man he was so positive and he made you feel so comfortable took the pressure off you all the time just go out and enjoy yourself george best was in the squad and it was prior to the the world cup you know uh, uh games against holland and uh, he told me that, uh, the day before that I was going to play the next day and I couldn't believe it because George Best was one of my heroes and I was going to be playing up front and that's all I could think about I'm playing up front tomorrow and they were world champions as well West Germany as it happened in Cologne and um, you know it was fantastic to actually participate and make your debut but there was so much nervous tension you know but every time I got the ball I just give it to George <laughs> <laughs> Now another landmark around that time with Northern Ireland you won the 1980 Home International Championship. Billy Bingham had taken over for the second time. That was a really big achievement, I have to say, because, you know, we had a lot of younger players and Noel Brotherston was coming into the team then. And um, we had some really good young players coming through. Pat Jennings and Arsenal were involved in the uh, Europa League and uh, they couldn't participate in it. So Jim Platt was playing in goal. And, you know, there was, it was, a, it was a, not as strong a squad, but um, we, we played and won it. And I think it's only the second time in the history of the competition that uh, we had actually won it. And then we went on to win it again. You did, the last one. That's the last one. So yeah. we hold the trophy. You did. Yeah. You'll always hold the trophy, yeah. <laughs> um, now, look, this was an exciting time because you are now looking forward to trying to qualify for the 82 World Cup. You were drawn in a group alongside Scotland, Sweden, Portugal and Israel. Two teams to go through. And I think I'm right in saying at the end of that qualifying competition, you scored the only goal in a 1-0 win over Israel and you came second in the group. Yeah, it was it was a tough group because um, we knew Portugal were the team that we had to be careful of and Scotland were a very good side at the time. They were an excellent side. And uh, we had actually been to Scotland and drew and we'd done very well. But we beat Sweden at home 3-0 and Jimmy Nichols scored an absolute screaming goal that day. He scored a brilliant goal, his only goal for Northern Ireland. But um, we played really well against Sweden so I didn't really have too many fears about them. But then we went to Portugal and lost 1-0 and um, then we lost to Sweden away, a penalty. And uh, it wasn't a great performance if I remember right. But we had lots of pressure when we came home and it meant we needed to beat Portugal at home and we beat them 1-0. And there wasn't many chances and I managed to get on the end of a Terry Cochran cross and head one in the back of the net and we won that 1-0. And then the next game was Scotland at home and we thought if we can beat Scotland, we're back in the frame. And we drew with Scotland that night, 0-0. And we should have won the match. We missed chances. And they played, they were on the back foot, but they played pretty well. And it was a wet night and we were disappointed. And when we went back to the hotel 
in the Culloden. And we were all very disappointed, John, because we thought we had missed our chance because Portugal was at home to Sweden. But Martin O'Neill was on the radio. He was listening on the radio to the game and he kept running in while we were having dinner to give us an update. And Portugal went 1-0 down against Sweden. And we thought, here, this maybe we've got a chance here. So then they equalised and then Portugal uh, went 2-1 down. And they ended up losing the game and it meant that our point against Scotland was a great point because yeah. all we had to do was beat Israel at home mm-hmm. to qualify for the World Cup. So it was a massive, massive game. And you got the goal, the 27th minute, the crowd at Windsor Park, 40,000, November 1981. I mean, there was more to come, but that at the time was dramatic, wasn't it? It was more than 40,000, Jean. Believe you me, they were packed in like sardines. <laughs> 40,000 plus, I would say. And it was a big, big game. There was a lot of nervousness about and um, it was a set play that we'd worked on and tried for two or three years and hadn't had any success from. But it was a, a crossover, a cross to the far post. I blocked the centre half off for Billy Hamilton. He headed the ball down into where I wanted it and I volleyed it left foot in the back of the net. So it, it actually worked for... For once, at the right time. That saw you through to the finals, but I'm just going to take you back to your club career for a moment because you were now with Watford, who was a... It was an emerging side, wasn't it, under Graham Taylor when you you joined them in 1980? Yeah, that was a big time in my career because, you know, when I was at Tottenham, it was a big club and I was a very fit lad at Tottenham. But when I joined Watford, you've no idea how fit some of the players were. The regime was totally different. You know, it was like an athletics club who played a bit of football on the side, you know, and um, everybody had a regime. And I got myself really fit under Graham Taylor. And he was a wonderful coach and a great mentor. And uh, he taught me an awful lot about being positive and and, uh, where I should be on the park in any given time when the crosses are coming in. So I got a good education there for a couple of years. And I think they were very important. And Graham particularly was very important in what happened in the World Cup in 1982. Well, possibly because he'd taken Watford from the old fourth division title through to the third division, then to the second division. I mean, and then in, in this season, which we're going to come on to the World Cup in a minute, in the 1981-82 season, Watford won promotion to the old first division, finishing up runners-up to Luton Town in the second division. And these were very exciting times at Watford, weren't they? Oh, it was fantastic. I was having a great time because we just qualified a few months earlier. Um, against Israel so I knew we were going to the World Cup and um, I was training hard at Watford but I was also in St Albans I was running around the forests and doing extra training in the evening getting preparation for the World Cup you know Graham was very um, helpful in in all of that and he taught me an awful lot about stretching and about your body and how to keep yourself in good shape you know and diets and all the rest of it so he was important but there was so much going on. We were we were participating. I got injured, I think it was in the January, and uh, I was out for about five or six weeks. But when I came back, I was on the bench, and I was on the bench for quite a lot. I ended up on the bench quite a lot because the team kept winning, and I couldn't get in. So I got nicknamed the judge because I was on the bench so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, you mentioned the extra training you were doing, but when the Northern Ireland squad assembled prior to the 1982 World Cup, the training was at Brighton. Why? That's, that's right. Well, it was one, it was on the south coast and it was hot. And they had the Sussex University. And uh, the facilities of Sussex University were brilliant. And uh, we stayed in the hotel on the seafront. We trained every morning and every afternoon. I think it was mostly running in the morning. We'd go back and have a light lunch. And then we'd go back in the afternoon and we did all football. And that was when he had assembled a squad. And that was the first time I got to meet Norman Whiteside who had a big part to play in the World Cup as well. And it obviously became the youngest player ever to participate in the World Cup. And started finding out, this was a young lad at Manchester United, and started to find out what a great player he was, what a great left foot he had. And then my position changed because Billy then decided he was going to drop me a bit deeper and play me on the right-hand side of midfield. And we actually practiced it in the British Championships. And uh, I think it was against Wales. I played on that right-hand side in one match just to see how it went. And then we practiced it down on the pitches down in Sussex and we put it into operation. So it was Billy Hamilton and Norman were up front as the front two. Norman was naturally left-footed and Billy was a brilliant target man, big lad up front on the right-hand side. And then I could play in the midfield and I could protect Jimmy Nickel as a right-back, but could also support Sammy McElroy, David McCreary and Martin O'Neill in the middle of the park. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sport with Jerry Armstrong. 
Well, they made the draw, and your group for 1982 World Cup finals was Honduras, Yugoslavia, and Spain. What were your first thoughts about that? Oh, my God. <laughs> Spain were the host nation and favourites. Yugoslavia had scored 26, 27 goals in qualification and were very technically good. So we were, I think we were fourth in the group. I think I think I remember Jimmy Greaves and, and, and Saint telling everybody not to be expecting to be there too long because, you know, they didn't think we would score or we'd get a point. So it was going to be difficult. Nobody really gave us much of a chance except ourselves because we had great belief. That two years, I don't know if you know, John, but 1980, we were... We started a run of games at Windsor Park where we were unbeaten. And that run continued right through to the 1986 World Cup. So it was over five and a half years we were unbeaten at Windsor Park. And that's what you need. If you're going to be solid at home and you know teams were coming to play you and it was a fortress, you know, and, and we beat Germany home and away, you know, in the 84-85 yeah. year. So, I mean, we were really, we were starting to evolve as a good team and we started to believe in ourselves. We never conceded many goals. We were really hard to play against. We were hard to break down. And, um, you know, we could hurt you on the break and we were good on our set plays. Now, your first game in the World Cup finals was against Yugoslavia in Zaragoza and it finished nil-nil, which I'm sure must have been a good point for you, wasn't it? Well, we set out, obviously, to try and make sure we, we didn't lose the game. And that was the idea at the start. But the heat... And it was really hot, you know, especially in a nine o'clock kickoff. The humidity was unbelievable. And um, players were taking salt tablets before kickoff. And at halftime, you were drinking as much liquid as you could because you just lost so much fluids. And that was a problem. That was a problem. And we weren't used to it. That's why we went to Brighton and did the training there in the heat. But um, we were really pleased. The first half went as, as we expected it. But in the second half, they started to flag because we seemed to be fitter than them. And um, I, I realised with about 20 minutes to go that we were starting to get well on top. And I thought the last 20 minutes we had a chance to maybe even nick the game. And they were hanging on. So that gave us more encouragement. And it was a good nil-nil draw in the end because uh, we knew that the next game was Honduras. Yes, you stayed in Zaragoza for that, didn't you? And, and that also ended in a draw. Yeah, well, we had pla <laughs> we had planned to win that one, John. <laughs> I think you were the scoring, Jerry, didn't you? I, think, yeah. I did, but we had planned to win that one. We thought we could we could beat Honduras, and um, we should have beaten them. We had a couple of chances. I I got on in off a free kick. I think Chris Nickel headed it onto the crossbar, and it came back, and I was in the right place to head it in from that. But then after that, I remember going past centre half. I think his name was Costly. And I went past him and had a shot. And I thought it was in the back of the net. I hit the post. Came straight back into the goalkeeper's hands. And we were on top in that first half. And we should have capitalised it. But then the captain was a guy called Betancourt, who was a centre forward. And he got in on the, a free kick, a corner kick, sorry, at the near post and hammered it into the roof of the net. And um, we were disappointed, bitterly disappointed we didn't win the game. Now, the final group games were not played simultaneously. Yugoslavia beat Honduras 1-0 and that meant that Northern Ireland needed a 2-2 draw or better against Spain. You had to move now to Valencia to ensure qualification when you met on the following day in the last group match. Just tell me what the build-up was like to what became a momentous occasion. You wouldn't believe the build-up because the day before, and this is a true story, the day before we used to train in the morning, come back and have lunch and then we would relax and Billy Bingham allowed us to sunbathe for an hour out by the pool in the city solaire on the beach in Valencia. So we come out and we sunbathe and relaxed and we played our music and uh, the boys had one of those beatbox things with the tapes in it and they were playing the music and we were all relaxed and Martin was the captain and he called everybody over by the pool and he says, right lads, this is how it's going to go. He said, now you know the pressure's all on them, on Spain. You know, we'd watched them play actually as well against uh, uh, Yugoslavia and I thought they were quite fortunate. So he said, the pressure's all on them and they'll come at us the first 20 minutes. He said, and we'll do what we do best. We'll get behind the ball, we'll make it difficult and we'll frustrate them. And he said, and then as the frustration's growing, we'll start getting more and more into the game and we'll get two or three chances and we'll score one of them and we'll beat them 1-0. That's what he said the day before the game. 
And exactly, you know, you commentated on John. They came at us the first 20 yes, minutes. Yes. And I remember Lopez Uforti on the left-hand side cutting past a couple of people and having a shot that Pat Jennings had to get down and make a, a smart save from. And we were under a bit of pressure, but not as not that much. that We, we were overpowered and we coped pretty well. But um, it started to become a bit of a kicking match. I think they were frustrated. And I remember a couple of incidents where Martin O'Neill particularly got kicked by Xavi Alonso's father, Perico. He was yeah. playing in the middle of the park. Yeah. And he kicked him a couple of times in the corner flag. And then Sammy McElroy got done in the back of the calf. He was raked with studs. And the referee booked Sammy because he retaliated. And it was started to get a wee nasty edge to it. And that led, obviously, to the second half. But the second half was one of those where we were... I think it was only one or two minutes into the second half and we were on the back foot as usual. Yeah. And there was, Gordillo was the left-sided fullback who pushed on all the time. And he had the socks around his ankles and I saw him broken forward. And I played about 10 yards in front of Jimmy Nickel and I knew the ball was going out wide to Lopez Uforte. And I anticipated and intercepted the pass and went off on a run. And Xavi Alonso's father tried to kick me on the halfway line and I kept going and give the ball to Big Billy. Now just and just stop there because I want to I want to recall <laughs> thirty six how many years later was it um, thirty six just, just what happened because I remember doing this commentary but I always remember you started the move as you explained but Billy Hamilton comes into the story Jerry Armstrong what a worker he is striding away there with Hamilton to his right Norman Whiteside up on the far side of the area still Billy Hamilton he's got past Tendilio. Northern Ireland have scored through Jerry Armstrong. A mistake by the goalkeeper, and it's the 100th goal of this World Cup tournament. And it could be a priceless one for Northern Ireland. Watch Arcanada. That's not the best goalkeeper in Europe on that form. And Armstrong drives it through him, through the defender's legs. And Northern Ireland have taken the lead. Well, what a fantastic moment. Now, before I ask you for your version of it, I must say as the commentator, and the Irish fans used to tease me about this because they memorised the commentary for many years, and they always used to say, I cannot, because I thought he was going to grab the ball, of course, and he didn't, so I didn't get his name out, but I got yours out. (laughs) (laughs) It was a crazy moment because when Billy was on the right-hand side and I fed the ball out wide to him, he still had Tendilio in front of him. And Billy's a big bustling centre forward, but he, he knocked the ball past Tendilio and then he, he used his left arm and he slapped him out of the way. He did slap him out of the way and went down. And Billy, I thought, well, he's not... I, I was Normally I would go looking for the cross and try and get on the end of the cross, but I thought, well, he's probably not going to put a, a great cross in here, so I'll, I'll hold on the edge of the box. And it was a bit of good fortune more than anything because Billy put a brilliant cross in, probably the best cross he, he ever put in. And um, he's put a fabulous cross in, attempted Tendilio, and he's come out for it. And the other centre-half was called Alessanco, and Camacho was the right-back. And they were confused by the, the quality of the cross from Billy, and Argonata coming for it. And that was a mistake, as you said, John, he did, he made a mistake. And he palmed it straight out, and I can still see it coming towards me. And I thought, happy days, you know, my luck's in here. All I had to do was, there were still three bodies in front of me, and I thought, I've got to keep it low. So I kept my head down and got my knee over the top of the ball and hammered it hard and low. And I think I got a double nutmegs. I mean, the place went mad. The Irish supporters, I always remember the, the, the sort of the euphoria in the ground. And of course, Spain were on their knees psychologically. But soon afterwards, Mal Donaghy was sent off, wasn't he? So you played a lot of the second half with 10 men. Yeah, we did. But you know what? We had that sort of spirit and resilience. We were that type of team. I said you earlier, you know, from 1978, 79, 80, the team was evolving and we started to believe in ourselves and get results. And we were so solid, you know, and all it meant was that Billy Hamilton became the centre forward on his own. Billy Bingham took off Norman Whiteside and brought on Sammy Nelson as a uh, sorry, Tommy Castley first came on. Yes. He brought Tommy Castley on first as an extra midfield player, and we played four four one, you know, and capped it with the ten. Which, but the decision for Mal getting sent off was it was a disgraceful decision, you know. It was a nothing challenge, and Camacho never made much of it. To be fair, two players running for the ball, and he's gone through his momentum, carried him in, and uh, I don't know why he sent him off. To be honest, it was a harsh decision. I thought. 
Well, you held on. I can remember the calm figure of Pat Jennings plucking a couple of balls out the air. And the final whistle went. Now, let's be fair. Lots of people were surprised because you'd won the group um, with four points. And Spain were second and Yugoslavia. But did the Irish FA really expect this? Because I seem to remember you now had to make sort of arrangements to remain in Spain for the next matches. Well, you would not believe what happened. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, thinking back on it, it's crazy because I'd done an interview with Jimmy Hill an hour before kickoff on the pitch and he, and he was chatting to me and he said, you know, it'd be good luck for you because Paul Mariner, I interviewed him yesterday and he went and scored the winning goal against Saudi Arabia. And he said, so come on, do we interview? So I did an interview with Jimmy and then we, I went into um, to the dressing room to join in the celebrations with the players but they grabbed me as I walked off the pitch and said no you're going for a dope test so they took me in and I, I'd lost about 10-12 pounds in body fluid with the heat and um, it was crazy and uh, I couldn't uh, pass the urine sample I couldn't so I was drinking water and I was drinking everything then I was drinking beer and trying to get enough urine to, to give the test so I did the test eventually and I never even got into the showers I just came straight through the players were already on the coach I stuck my tracksuit on, took my, my boots and kit and jumped on the bus to get back to the hotel for the celebrations. And of, of course, Jimmy was sitting waiting for us at the hotel, Jimmy Hill, with a tray of champagne and all the glasses and, and waiting for us to come in and welcome us back to the hotel at the City Solar in Valencia. And the party began. And we were celebrating for the best part of two or three hours and thinking it doesn't get any better than this. We've just qualified for the quarterfinals of the World Cup and we've won the group. And then Billy Bingham, suddenly became from the happiest man in the world to a really angry man and he called a lot of the senior players over and he said look we've got a problem and I said what's the problem and he said um, I've just been told they didn't expect us to qualify and uh, they had our flights booked to go back to London the next day and um, there's no hotel booked for us in Madrid so that was the start of the problems but we left them to deal with that and just continued our celebration and and then the next day what happened was we had to get um, flights obviously arranged for the players to go to Madrid we had to take the hotel that was booked by Yugoslavia who had fancied they were going to qualify and we took the Yugoslavian hotel which was not a good choice it was on the runway of the uh, the airport it was just on packing onto the runway of the airport at Madrid I still I tell you we must have heard every plane taken off <laughs> You know, for the next two, three days. And um, anyway, we got there, but we were going to make the most of the situation. You know, it doesn't happen every no. uh, every often that you're you're going to qualify for a quarterfinals of a World Cup and no. knock, and knock effectively knock the host nation out. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sport with Jerry Armstrong. Now, for younger Talk Sport listeners, we ought to explain at this point that the 1982 World Cup second round, which you'd qualified for, was not a knockout. It was going to be a de facto quarterfinal with four groups of three teams playing each other 
on a round-robin basis, I hope I've explained that, with the winners going to the semi-finals. So basically, you were in a mini-group with Austria and France in the second group phase. And the matches would take place in Madrid, not at the Bernabeu, but at the Vicente Calderon Stadium. Absolutely correct, John. And that's exactly how it happened. But I, I can't understand... Because we've qualified at the top of our group, how we ended up playing Austria after they had lost to France. And then we only had two days of a break, whereas the French had three, four days of a, of a break between the games. And that was always something that riled me. And um, we drew 2-2 with Austria. and It was a very good game. It was an excellent game. But it was a game that we were 1-0 up and... I expected us to build on that lead because Austria were very fortunate, I think, to qualify in the first place. And um, then it, it ended up, they went 2-1 up and we had to come from 2-1 down to actually get the equalising goal. And we were disappointed we only got a draw out of the game. You actually returned the compliment and made a goal for Billy Hamilton, didn't you? It I was, did. Yeah. I was involved in both the cro- I was involved in the run and the cross for the goal for Billy to put his one nil up. And then when we were chasing it, I remember going forward and having a shot that was blocked, but the block fell kindly for uh, Jimmy Nickel, and Jimmy Nickel crossed it into the box and Billy headed it into the net. So, you know, we got a two all draw, but I feel we should have won that game. And we were certainly the better team. But it put us under more pressure for the, the, the final game against France for the quarterfinals. And that was uh, another game that was interesting because first 15, 20 minutes, I thought we played really well. And Martin O'Neill scored what was a very good goal. He played a 1-2 with myself. I had the French centre-half called Tresor, who was marking me. And I didn't. Cont- I just led it off. He played it into me on a 1-2 and I led it off. And Martin hit it sweet. And it hit the back of the net, the back stanchion. And then we were celebrating. But then the linesman's flag went up. And when you see the replay, like it's ridiculous. He was three yards onside. You know? But it was when the ball was hit. And then when they went to do the celebration, I don't know if the linesman was in a poor position or whatever it was. But that was the sort of game that we would go 1-0 up and then defend. But because we had to win the game... We had to chase it, and that didn't suit us, and uh, we ended up getting beat 4-1. No, it's narrow margins, isn't it? That Martin O'Neill goal should have should have uh, stood. Now, France actually went on to win 4-1 in the end. Uh, I mean, they had a terrific team. Uh, Rosto scored twice, Gires scored twice. You scored the Northern Ireland goal in the 75th minute, Jerry. Yeah, it was a consolation, and we were 3-0 down at that stage, and I remember Norman Whiteside did really well down the left-hand side, and he bamboozled a couple of French defenders and put in a, a half-decent cross that was partially deflected, and it came my way. And I was coming in in the inside right position of the penalty area, and I, it, it fell in front of me, and I just came onto it and hit it. Sweet. And um, Billy Hamilton still claims that it touched his boot on the way in. He still claims it hit him <laughs> on the way in. But the goal was, uh, was given to me, and uh, that was my third goal in the World Cup. Yes, three in five matches, you're quite right. And you were also voted the best British player at the tournament, Jerry. I was, yeah, which was a big surprise, but it was great. It was great to um, see the, the, the team do so well and for us to actually step onto that sort of a stage and show what we were capable of. And it gave us a lot of belief for future games. And that's why I think for the next four years after that, we had some fantastic results and uh, we were a very good side. When you got home from the 82 tournament, it was back to Watford, and they finished runners-up to Liverpool in the first division in 82-83. Watford was a very... It was a great club. When we had the ball, we played 4-2-4. But when we hadn't got the ball, we played 4-4-2. Yeah. So we played John Barnes on the left wing as a winger and Nigel Callaghan on the right wing, who was a winger. But they, when they didn't have the ball, they had to work just like everybody else. And it was a really functional side that worked tremendously hard and gave 100%. And... Um, John was just an amazing footballer, you know, with sweet left foot, sweet right foot, mm. could cross a ball, could score goals, could take free kicks. And Nigel Callum was very underestimated as a, a right winger as well. He played for England under 21, but he was a wonderful crosser of a ball and he, he struck a really good ball as well. So we had a lot of players who could score goals. You know, and there was Ross Jenkins and Luther Blissett, myself, who were always going to cause problems. In fact, that Watford team went on to reach the FA Cup final the following season. But you'd left by now because in the summer of 1983, you moved out of the country 
which in those days wasn't all that common, to Real Mallorca. And I just wondered, did the fact that you scored that goal against Spain in the World Cup, was that the reason why Mallorca got interested in you? Yeah, they had several players who were interested in, and there was some interest from Zaragoza and Seville. There was two or three clubs that shown interest in me after the World Cup, and uh, Mallorca had just been promoted, and the chairman had uh, Miguel Contesti, his name was he. He wanted a centre forward, and um, he was looking at me and a couple of others, and he, he wanted me. He said he wanted me, so they, they came looking for me, and I spoke to them, and I thought I was... Um, I was 29, just 29 then. I thought, I just got over an injury and it kept me out for three months. I thought, well, you can't play football all your life. And uh, it was a really good offer financially. So I decided to take the the opportunity and go for it. And Mallorca wasn't a bad place to go to live. No, it wasn't. And in one of the early <laughs> games you played for them, it meant you returning to Valencia, to the scene of your famous goal for Northern Ireland. And I think you, you scored again, but you also got a bit of abuse. I got a lot of abuse, I have to say, because I didn't speak much Spanish then. You know, it was six months after I joined the club and my Spanish was getting better, but I still wasn't 100%. And the players obviously were reading the papers and, and all the papers had said the guy that, Donis in the 82 World Cup is coming back with Real Mallorca. So there was loads of people, there was hundreds of people outside the the uh, the Casanova Stadium, Luis Casanova, but um, which is what it was called then. And um, I, I didn't know anything was untoward. So the players let me get off the coach first and they threw everything at me. I mean, eggs, apples, bananas, you name it. They threw the lot at me, oranges. So uh, I took a bit of a pelt and the players were all laughing, had a bit of fun. But we found ourselves 2-1 down in the game and it was about 20 minutes to go and I picked the ball up uh, just around the halfway line and uh, went past a couple of people and hit one into the... uh, the far right-hand corner of the same goal I scored against before. <laughs> Lucky ground for you. <laughs> so now, I played twice and scored twice. Well done. Now, there's another match that Mallorca played that season I particularly want to ask you about. I know you were struggling against possible relegation, but you played Valladolid. Yeah. Uh, you scored a goal that put Mallorca 1-0 up. Um, but there was a bit of crowd trouble as a result of that goal. There was, yeah. It was a relegation game because... You know, we were on a roll at the time. We had actually found a bit of form. There was a lot of players that just joined the club and it took us a good five or six months to actually gel as a team. And we were on a roll. I think we'd gone nine or ten games unbeaten. And we had won away at Sporting Hecon 3-0 the week before. And we were at home to Valladolid. And if we beat them, we went out of the relegation zone. I went past a player and hit a shot and it flew in the back of the net. And the crowd, it was a full house in New York then. And the stadium was really old and it had a dry moat and the wall broke and fans started falling into the, the dry moat and it was horrendous because all I could see was the bodies going down on top of each other and I thought somebody's going to get killed here but uh, they stopped the game for at least 20 minutes, half an hour and uh, thankfully no one was seriously injured there was a few people had arms injuries and wrist injuries and breaks but nobody was seriously injured and the game was continued and it finished 1-1 we had two players sent off in the game fans were not happy and the referee had to get a police escort to the airport this is motty meets on talk sport with jerry armstrong you were now qualifying for the 1986 world cup in mexico and it was a tough group jerry uh, England to start with, yeah. Romania, Finland yeah. and Turkey. Yep, tough, tough games, really all tough games. And do you know what? We always seem to do well against the better sides. You know, we always seem to do well. And the game at Windsor Park, we didn't deserve to lose. You know, we played some really good football. And unfortunately, it was one of those one-off breakaways England scored and we missed our chances. And we should have gotten at least a draw out of the game. But it left us with a, a, a daunting task of uh, we had to play Romania away and they hadn't lost in a World Cup qualifier in something like 23 years at home. And uh, we went there and we won 1-0. And that left us with one game left at Wembley. Well, I remember it ever so well because yeah. I commentated on that game. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I seem to remember Billy Bingham got married for the second time on that day before he came to the match. To Wembley. I remember that. Cause is that, I, is, is that, am I right? I've just said that from memory. Yeah, because I was his best man. Were you really? <laughs> well, I, that I didn't know. Come on, let, let's have the story. <laughs> he was married in St Albans. He was married in St Albans. Him and Rebecca got married in St Albans. And uh, yes, 
That was, it was either, it wasn't the day, I think it was the day before. Was it? Well, I the remember, day before. I remember that being one of the stories of the of match day. Anyway, and I also remember, Jerry, uh, that it was a nil-nil draw, which was exactly what you needed, really, to qualify ahead of Romania. But I remember Pat Jennings that night, once again, just as he, he was in 82, so calm about the whole thing. Do you know what? He made us calm as well because we knew even if they got past the back four, they still had to get past Big Pat. And he made save after save. And I'd watched him doing it for so many years. You know, he was just amazing. And, you know, I was trying to coax him because he was looking to retire. And Billy kept saying to me, don't let, I was his roommate. And he said, do not let him retire. He said, we need him for the World Cup. And I told him, I said, we need you. You know, and I said, you know, you're going to retire after the World Cup when we get there. So when we got there, he said, OK. And um, he then continued to train. I think it was at uh, White Hart Lane at Tottenham to keep his fitness up. And they let him train there. And he went off to the 86 World Cups in Mexico. Well, when the draw was made in the finals, as it were, um, you were drawn against Brazil, goodness me, Spain again, yeah. and Algeria. In fact, uh, your first game was against Algeria in, in Guadalajara. We were an aging team. Uh, Pat Jennings was 40 at the time, and um, we celebrated his birthday on the 12th of June in the last game at the Jalisco I, Stadium I remember, against Brazil. I remember the BBC bringing... Uh, um, a band to play underneath his bedroom window to celebrate that mariachi birthday. band mariachi band well done <laughs> so right now the third game and by now things weren't looking quite so good were they it was against brazil in guadalajara i was commentating because i remember that game for three things first of all it was pat jennings last match in football yeah the age of 41 i remember you coming on as a substitute for your final international cap correct but i also remember a goal by a right-back of Brazil who was making his international debut. Alamal. Oh, Careca and Casagrande are waiting for a cross, and Josimar! What a goal! And he scores on his first appearance with a superb shot. Josimar beats Jennings in the top corner, and that was vintage Brazil. What about that shot? It was unbelievable. I was actually warming up on the sidelines and having a bit of fun as well with Billy Hamilton because Billy and I both went for a warm-up at the same time and there was a huge roar from the crowd and Billy looked round and said to me, is that for us? And I was saying, yeah, yeah. I said, they know who we are. They know who Hamilton and Armstrong are. I said, don't worry about that. And uh, he was all smiling. But what he didn't know was Zico was behind him warming up. <laughs> and that's what the cheer was. Yeah. But he turned around and saw Zico. He gave me the dirtiest oh. look ever. But I was behind the goal when he hit it. And it moved by two or three different directions before it hit the back of the net. Hmm. It was an incredible it, it, it shot. It swerved, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. Northern Ireland actually finished third in the group but you weren't one of the four best-placed third teams. So, in fact, if you'd earned one more point, you'd have made the last 16. Yes, I know. And uh, we still think about the Algerian game because we feel we should have won the match. And that was a chance we, we, we didn't take. But then again, against Spain, we didn't play particularly well. Um, after 20, 25 minutes, they cope with the altitude better than us. And then the Col Colin Clark's goal gave us a, a, a little bit of a lifeline and a lift, but we just couldn't find the extra extra bit to, to get an equaliser. So, but Brazil were so good. Caracas scored twice. He was brilliant. He yeah. was a very good finisher. Yeah, he was. Now then, that was the end of the dream then as far as Northern Ireland were concerned in 86. Now, you club-wise had come home really, hadn't you? Le leaving Real Mallorca, you joined West Bromwich Albion, had a spell at Chesterfield yeah. and finished up at Brighton. Yeah. When I was in the World Cup, I got a phone call from Alan Mullery who was the manager Brighton. of Brighton, and he asked me if I'd come and meet him because he had taken over at Brighton and he wanted me to sign for Brighton, and that's exactly what happened. Well, I've got to ask you one thing about the time at Brighton because um, <laughs> you've heard of Eric Cantona jumping in the crowd, haven't you? All our listeners, obviously. But you, you were sent off in a, in a reserve game, the first red card of your career, I must say. But I think you better tell me how this happened, Jerry. First red card of my um, professional career, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, it was I was player coach at the time of the reserves at Brighton and it was a Sussex Senior Cup game. We were playing against Southwick and it was at Southwick. I had a very young side, 17 and 18-year-old lads and uh, these guys were quite physical. So um, I added a wee bit of physical presence as well and unfortunately I overstepped the mark, John, and got sent off. 
And once I get sent off, I've been taking a lot of abuse from a, a section in the crowd. So I jumped the stand and headbutted and punched a few people who had been giving me stick. And that was the end of my professional career because I, I, I retired after that. But you had to go to court. Went to court, yes, yeah. about four or five weeks later. And I got a, a suspended sentence because it was my first offence. And uh, it was a, an, um, a sad end to my career. But, you know, my first, my first game for Bangor ended up in a sending off. Oh right, and, and my very last game yeah. as a professional ended up as oh, a sending right. off. So well, never mind. There was a bit of a ironic let's, part to let, that. Now let's just go back to Northern Ireland for a minute because when we said it was your last cap, that was the end of your international playing career, but you had two periods of direct involvement as assistant manager in the Northern Ireland setup. Brian Hamilton asked you to help him in the mid nineties, and more recently you were the number two to Laurie Sanchez. Now, what about the Laurie Sanchez time? Because I well remember coming over to Belfast for Northern Ireland versus England in a World Cup qualifier in 2005. I remember Laurie and yourself letting me come and watch the training on the morning of the game. And I also remember, because you get a feeling sometimes as a commentator, I just thought to mind, I know England had Beckham and Rooney and all, but I just had a feeling that the spirit in the Northern Ireland camp was promising something a little bit special. And of course... When the game started, and Windsor Park, of course, it was, well, a moment I will never forget because it was almost historic. Here's Davis. Oh, he's on the side. Healy for Northern Ireland. Real chance. And he scored. Oh, what a moment for Northern Ireland. David Healy scores their first goal against England for 25 years. Laurie Sanchez's team in the lead. And Belfast and Windsor Park has gone crazy. in the 74th minute but prior to that at half time when the score was nil nil and I understand there were some very hard words spoken in the England dressing room involving Wayne Rooney but you finished up having a conversation with the England coach Sven Joran Eriksson I knew Sven very well at the time and um, he we were walking off at half time and we had spent three days preparation and you know Laurie had some great staff you know Terry Gibson and Dave Besant with the other members of staff and it was like a crazy gang situation but it was all about pressing and I said look England technically are much better than us so we're going to have to press and work their first touch and we worked for three days on pressing and closing down and working as a unit and it was hard for the players but you know what they did it really well and they were up for it they really were up for it I don't know if they could believe, totally believed in themselves but see after half an hour John they started to think, hold on a minute, you know, we've got them rattled because Rooney got himself a book in and he had a shout at David Beckham and they were all starting to argue among each other and it started to turn our way and, and I think they started to believe. But walking off, Sven had said to me, uh, hey, Jerry, said, your boys, they did really good first half. And I said, if you think we did good first half, what do you see what we're going to do second half? You know, and he had a wry smile because that actually helped him out a bit when he became England manager and his first game was, was in charge against uh, Spain at Villa Park. And I went up and gave him a brief and give the players a brief on the Spanish and, you know, hard to play against them. And it was a very successful start for Sven. Yeah, well, actually, England did recover in that group for the 2006 World Cup, but the Irish supporters will never forget that night at uh, Windsor Park and the goal by David Healy. Now, you continued your media work, which I know you still do. But last year, bringing the story right up to date, you were named as an ambassador for the homeless charity Street Soccer NI. Can you explain a little bit about that to me? Yeah, it was a cousin of mine was telling me about the project a few years ago. And um, I was interested and went and met some of the people who were involved in it. And these people were living in the streets, not just in Belfast, but Coleraine and all different parts in all in Ireland. And I thought it was a really interesting situation and it was a, a venture that I wanted to get involved in and try and help. So the first year, that first year, which was two years ago, John, the players went off and played. They've been to different parts of the world. Every year they have the street soccer and it's a small-sided game. But there, there's a certain credentials you have to have which means you have to li be living on the streets and uh, they hadn't got work and all the rest so the, a lot of the players who participated in it when they came back had found their self-esteem had been training hard and had a routine got themselves jobs 
we worked with the housing executive, the Northern Ireland housing executive at the time, and they then got them houses. So we could see the improvement. And then this year, and hopefully next year, it's going to be a snowball effect. And we're now starting to find them. Plus, it's now there's also a ladies' team because there's obviously females who are sleeping in the streets as well. So we've, we've taken it on, and it's a really worthwhile venture, and I, I'm really enjoying it. All power to you, Elbow, for that, because goodness me, you're contributing still to, to, to uh, society as well as to football. Now, Jerry, I'm going to go right back to the beginning at the end of this lovely chat we've had, um, because I imagine that wherever you go, particularly in Ireland, but in other places as well, people must always come back to that goal against Spain, don't they? I mean, to call it the highlight of your career, I mean, it, it stands out as one of the great World Cup moments. Well, it was for me. It was one of those magic moments, but you don't know what's going to happen. You always hope that you can be successful. And when you represent your country, and I represented mine, I had a self, a, this great pride that, you know, I was representing my country. You have to have belief. And that was something that took a wee while to actually to come through. And the team evolved, as I said, at the start. But um, that was a special moment. And... Um, People say, oh, he's still living off that goal. You know, I scored a lot of goals, but oh, that was that was a magic moment. And it was a special moment, not just for me. I've met people over the last 25, 35 years who said to me exactly where they were when I scored the goal. And they said they can remember where John F. Kennedy, where, when he was killed, where they were and what happened at the time. And it's a bit of the same for them. They can remember where they were when they scored the goal and what it meant to them. And the, the telegrams we got, we brought the whole nation together. You know, uh, because the troubles were still not sorted out in Northern Ireland in 1982. But when we come down the next day and Billy Bingham said to me, you, you better start reading the telegrams on the wall. And they were coming from everywhere, from all denominations, from all, you know, from uh, the Bishop of Down in Connor, from the President down in uh, the Republic of Ireland, from Australia, from Canada, the Reverend Ian Paisley. I mean, they were coming from everybody. And we didn't realise it at the time, but we actually brought... Our, our community together because they were having street parties all over Belfast you know which was a fantastic thing I'm just gutted I wasn't able to go and join in it with them because we were still participating but the players suddenly realised that we'd done something special well you certainly did Jerry, and uh, you're still doing a bit of special stuff you're still part of it and you deserve to be thank you very much thank you the undisputed world heavyweight champion of football commentators in another knockout interview. Motty Meats on Talk Sport. This has been Motty Meats. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.